This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Mike Simpson. And of course, we're talking about, as we always do, whatever the latest is involving the coronavirus pandemic. Hopefully, scientists have been hard at work trying to figure out how easy this virus is to spread. They're finding it mostly spreads through the air via aerosol particles and droplets. Now we're finding out that dust may even play a role. No, don't not dust, really. Listen, dust. My Swiffer, then, is going to be a much more valuable piece of equipment at home than, any, than anything else. Well, we'll get into that new research to show just how germy dust can spread this disease. Uh, so for all you clean fanatics out there listen up to that uh, story when it happens the race by the way is on to develop a vaccine but here's the thing once one is ready new issues will come up and we will explain what they are the country's most populated state is trying to get its economy going again take what is it three or four we'll check into whether california can open up more businesses without creating a third wave of cases now we are also going to hear in this podcast from the superintendent of a big school district here in california about why it's so important for at least some kids some kids to return to the classroom For most of us, the economy has been turned upside down because of this pandemic. With all the jobs lost, come back. And if they do come back, will they be the same? We'll try to find that out. Let's get back to germy dust. KCBS's Stan Bunger talked to UC Davis engineering professor Bill Ristenpart, who co-authored the study about how dust can spread disease. So, I mean, I think everybody has a good sense of, you know, a dusty bookshelf or the uh, sea dust particles floating around in the air. Um, and what our research has been focusing on is the role of even smaller dust, microscopic dust, um, that even though it's too small to see with the naked eye, if, if it's contaminated with a virus, uh, what our recent research has shown is that it can actually transmit influenza virus to susceptible mammalian hosts. And that research in- involved uh, not humans, but guinea pigs, if I remember right? Guinea pigs, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and so the influenza A virus, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, much different in terms of how they might be moved around? Well, so, I mean, uh, they're, so they're both respiratory viral pathogens. They're uh, virologically extremely different. Uh, one's a coronavirus, you know, one's influenza virus. Um, but they do share a similar feature that they're about the same size. Um, they're, you know, about 100 nanometers at 0.1 microns uh, in diameter. Um, and it hasn't been established yet clearly that uh, SARS-CoV-2 can be transmitted to susceptible mammalian hosts on dust particles. But there's a lot of uh, research indicating that dust can be a threat for other uh, viruses. So some of your listeners might be familiar with hantavirus, for example. Hantavirus is uh, spread by rat feces and you know, rodent feces, and it gets aerosolized. That's the fancy word for, like, the dust gets knocked into the air, and people breathe it in. And so what, what our recent research has shown is that, like, that kind of same mechanism that you can have contaminated, virus-contaminated microscopic dust particles, it transmits the flu virus in guinea pigs. And that really raises uh, concerns about whether that can be possible for other respiratory viruses 
including uh, the virus responsible for COVID-19. So this whole notion of, of aerosols uh, carrying the virus, you know, we've, we've been fortunate enough here on, on the segment to have uh, professors Lindsay Marr and Kim Prather on a few different times. So mm-hmm. you know, these mm-hmm. are people who have been doing a lot of work on, on the aerosol, I guess you could call it the ones that come out of us, right? So uh, by exhaling. Uh, Absolutely. So, so I'd be curious to hear how, how what you've been working on fits in with that notion of aerosols. So uh, Lindsay and Kim were both great. I was just uh, attending a virtual workshop with them for the past uh, couple of days, um, hosted by the National Academies. And uh, absolutely, uh, like my group's also been doing research on these aerosol particles that are emitted uh, just even when you talk. Um, so that's another one of the thrusts of uh, re- research activity in my group. And when you talk, when you just say, ah, uh, you don't think about it and you don't see anything, but there actually are a tremendous number of microscopic respiratory droplets being emitted. And our our intuition really breaks down for them. I I think most people are really familiar with like, you know, when you see a sneeze or a cough, you see these huge globs of fluid flying around. But just by saying, uh, to the naked eye, you don't see anything. But there are these really small particles. And they're so small, they're so lightweight, that they can be carried around in very, very gentle air currents, much more than this uh, six-foot rule that we've heard so much about. They can actually go, you know, all the ways across the room until they're uh, removed by the room ventilation. And so these aerosols, which are emitted by speaking and by breathing and by coughing and by sneezing, um, are believed to be responsible for some of these very large outbreaks that we've heard about. Creating a vaccine for this disease is hard enough, but what happens once it's ready for distribution? That's when the real new problems can develop. Well, I mean, look look at the problems we've had as a country getting testing done, let alone having to vaccinate all of America. It'll be really something if we can't store the vaccine safely. Absolutely. And and storing the vaccines could be, as you just pointed out, a really big challenge. And so we have gone to uh, Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez, and she talked about this entire issue with WBBM's Cisco Coto. It is very important for coronavirus vaccines that use this technology called mRNA to 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 keep them at very, very low temperatures. Now, this is important because these are the first two vaccines that we're expected to see. One of them is from Moderna and the other is from Pfizer and BioNTech. And we're talking about very cold, negative four degrees Fahrenheit for Moderna's. And we're talking about negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit for uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. Now, that's just for the 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 transportation and the storage of them, you do have a little bit of time when it comes to actually giving the vaccine, because obviously something that's frozen, you can't administer to someone. But the period of time is very short, and that's going to make it tricky. So what happens if something goes wrong and those temperatures are not met? Then the vaccines might not be effective, and we will just have to throw them away. And that is a problem because once we get a vaccine, many, many hundreds of millions of people, perhaps billions, are going to want them. So every dose is going to be critical. Do those storage terms make it more difficult to get the number of vaccines that we would need out to whether it's pharmacies, clinics, hospitals? I mean, it seems like you need a lot of specialty chambers to be able to hold this stuff. You're going to have to have specialty chambers to hold them. You're going to have to have specialty ships and trucks and other vehicles in which to transport them. It becomes a very complex logistical process, which, of course, is the problem that we've had all along with this coronavirus, right? Whether it comes to testing or masks or treatments, the manufacture and production and just the creation and getting all of these things where we need them has been 
one challenge after another. But this one certainly seems to be a a large hurdle. That's vaccines. Let's talk about testing. The White House says the feds are going to buy 150 million rapid tests, 750 million. That's Abbott's test. You can get results in maybe 15 minutes. Uh, Is that a game changer in trying to battle this? Public health officials really do believe this is a game changer. And let me tell you why. It's because it doesn't require equipment in order to get an answer. So think about it like you think about a pregnancy test. This is a product that can be used almost anywhere. It is about the size of a credit card folded over. And it, does, it doesn't it does use urine. It uses um, a swab that you, have in, that, that you put in through both nostrils. And then you just put a little couple of drops of this liquid, a buffer that allows the the material to flow the way that you would with a pregnancy test. And it can be done anywhere. They can be done simultaneously. So you're not waiting for a machine to finish processing whatever happened ahead of you in order to get the answer. They are going to recommend, they are going to require that health professionals administer these, but that could be a school nurse. So it is potentially a game changer. There are, of course, many questions, not least of which is the fact that the federal government has said it's buying $150 million, which, by the way, is the total amount that Abbott is expecting to make this year. So who's going to get them? We're not entirely sure, but it is something that for some people it'll be a game changer. So five bucks per uh, per test, I mean, that would, I guess, put a school in a situation where maybe once a week they could test a dorm if it's a college situation. But it's not a, a situation where they're every single day, everyone on campus or everyone in the high school is going to be able to get tested. Yeah, I can absolutely see the $5 tacked on charge for my airline ticket. And if you're going to a fancy restaurant, perhaps, you know, that you don't want to have to worry about at all that I can see an additional $5. But when you start talking about these really large numbers of organizations, if you're talking about schools or even, you know, city governments, that type of thing, when you're going to be wanting to test large numbers of people, even many companies, like that's, while $5 on its own seems not that much, right? That's the cost of a Big Mac meal. So you could have a test instead of a Big Mac meal. But if you're doing it for your entire organization that might have 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 people, that $5 a pop adds up. Yeah, that actually brings up a good point here. So uh, from the the time that I am exposed or the, the time that I'm infected, uh, do we know yet how long it takes for me to actually have a positive test? And the reason I ask is because it sounds like a, a test like this, a 15-minute rapid test, is something, for example, that a, a cruise line could use to say, hey, all 1,500 of you or 2,000 of you, before you get on the boat, we're testing you with this. And if you're negative, you get on. If you're positive, you don't, so that they can ensure uh, security and safety on that ship. But I mean, is there a chance that you're infected and, and it just doesn't show up in the test yet? The tests actually are less sensitive and specific than the current tests that we're using, right, which are the PCR tests that use these huge pieces of equipment, you know, $750,000 pieces of equipment that are in laboratories. Those ones are like 99 to 100% accurate. This one is less accurate. It's 97 to 98 point five percent accurate so so you do lose a little bit on the margins but in terms of you know paying five bucks to get on a cruise ship it would weed out most of the people and then perhaps those other folks could get 
a PCR test to make sure that they have the exact, you know, risk result that they know whether they're dangerous or not. But it, it is just a work in progress, Cisco. You are hitting on all the most important things here. And the bottom line is, is we just still don't have some of the answers. California's Governor Gavin Newsom is moving to get more businesses like hair salons to finally open back up again. The numbers are looking better across the state, but is the virus done? We tried to open up before, but we had to shut back down. But is this time going to be different? Dr. Peter Chin Hong is an infectious disease specialist with UC San Francisco. The doctor talked to me and Chris Seedens about whether infections will start to, you know, creep back up. Once you open up, uh, things get go awry a little bit. I mean, we've seen that with colleges reopening and people have had to have a reversal. I think a lot of people, when they hear reopening right now, people who are concerned about this virus, um, they, they worry. Uh, that that maybe we're doing things too soon. Obviously, the, the the governor wants to be cautious in this. So, how concerned are you? How concerned should we be as a collective whole about the reopening of California and the the fact that we have to do it right? Well, we have to do it right uh, because the last time we didn't do it right, uh, uh, we we shut up the levels even exceeding the first time we surged. So, I think. It's closer to meeting hospital capacity. So if we get back to another surge that's even higher with the fall coming in and influenza and other respiratory viruses, I think it may be a strain on hospital capacity probably for the first time in the pandemic in California. Well, you know, I know a lot of people probably don't want to hear this, but when you say do it right, isn't it, isn't it the case, though, that the only way to really do it right, if you really want to, to try to tamp down on this virus, is frankly to do it the way they did it in, in China, which I guess we can't do in this country. But and even in China, while they've been much more successful than we have in keeping the virus somewhat contained, even they have outbreaks from time to time. Yes, definitely, because borders are not closed completely and uh, certainly in the United States when every state is doing its own thing, our borders are open. So it doesn't matter at some level if you really want to be pessimistic what California does because there's Arizona right next door and Nevada. So I think in some levels we don't have the China here because we don't have that central national strategy. But on another level, California has shown that it can uh, do a good job. So it's just a matter of dimming that switch and sticking to that uh, maxim. I've heard some medical experts uh, make the point that as cold and flu season gets closer, some of us should be safer in that we're taking so many precautions now. We're wearing masks, in some cases wearing shields as well. Uh, How concerned are you of the upcoming cold and flu season when you add COVID into the mix as well? I think we're still concerned, even though we expect hopefully that with the precautions in place, as you said, that people actually wouldn't be getting as much flu, all common colds. Uh, I'm, I haven't even had a common cold since the pandemic started just because I've been wearing a mask all the time. But um, it is the stakes are much higher because we do have increased hospitalizations with influenza. And if you add COVID on top of that, you know, all of a sudden we might be treating patients in the hallway. Well, let me ask you a question that I, I think maybe a lot of people are wondering, and Chris, you know, talking about the flu. Are the measures that we take for the pandemic, for the coronavirus, the masks, the six feet apart, the wiping down things relentlessly, is that what it takes also to uh, not pick up the influenza bug? Or do you need to do other things for the flu 
that perhaps we don't do for the coronavirus? That's a great question. Actually, to, you know, it is kind of a simple transmission route. All of them uh, have the same uh, transmission potential. So the things we do for COVID actually also apply to influenza and RSV and the other kinds of respiratory viruses. So that's the good news. The bad news is that once you get a outbreak of influenza, it's kind of really hard to, you know, in nursing homes, it's also hard to control that as well. Okay, very good. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, he is an infectious disease physician at the uh, UC San Francisco School of Medicine. Dr. Chin Hong, thank you. Teachers, administrators, and parents are finding that certain students are having the most trouble when it comes to remote learning. Many of these kids have special needs. That's led to a push to reopen classrooms for them so they don't fall even further behind and they get the special instruction that they need. So some of them will be headed back to class in San Diego next week. Cindy Martin is superintendent of the San Diego School District. Chris Seedens and I asked her how her district's plan is going to end up working. Students are going to get six hours a day of learning and they're going to have at least an hour of small group or teacher-led office hours and then at least two hours of project-based learning and up to three hours of live instruction with their teacher. And, of course, teachers are going to decide best how to use that time, which leads me to this plan that you just mentioned about our students that are going to come onto campuses for in-person learning. And we're working with our students that we're finding need to have that um, interaction, in-person, appointment-based learning, and we'll be using criteria where our teachers can tell when a student needs that kind of support. So looking at students that are failing to meet standards, maybe our students with disabilities, our vulnerable students could be considered some of the English learners, students with disabilities, as I said, and other groups like that, homeless youth or foster youth. But the idea is working with our educators because teachers, you know, I was a teacher for many, many years in the classroom. This is my 32nd year as an educator, and my fall is always the exciting time to get started. But teachers know their kids best. And when a teacher is seeing in that online environment that a student isn't learning to their potential or not meeting their IEP goals, we want to give that opportunity for an appointment-based learning on campus with an instructor. Now, as you know, around the country, many teachers, because by definition they are older than their students and therefore more vulnerable to the ravages of uh, the coronavirus, many teachers have been resistant to coming back into the uh, classroom. Have you met with much resistance from the part of either teachers or teachers' unions or that sort of thing? Well, that's why what's so important, what's driving us every step of the way since March 13th when we closed our schools, that we're letting the health and safety and guidelines and the scientific standards. We have a UCSD panel of 10 doctors that have continued to stay very close with us. We published a 60-page report that folks can look at. It's on our website around the health and safety safety standards and mitigation so that people can feel safe and that we're putting the best possible precautions in place. And so we actually heard from our teachers that some of them do want to teach even the distance learning. They want to teach from their classroom rather than from their home and making the schools open for them to go and do that if they so choose for this first phase. So this phase one of reopening, some teachers will be teaching their distance learning from their classroom and then this appointment-based learning, those that are ready to come back to do that, knowing that we have the personal protective equipment and the shields and the sanitizers and the air filters that are so important that the scientists really showed us how to safely reopen for those that are ready to do that in phase one. And so we educators want to be with their children, those that are where they find that they're most vulnerable or they have 
their own health issues. We want to be able to be flexible in this phase one. And the idea is let's do this safely. Let's do this in a way that breeds more confidence. And every step that we take forward should be a solid step forward towards a full reopening and not a shaky step forward. And we feel like the the way science leads the way and we go forward and not um, go backwards. If any step forward, we want to say, we say we go slow to go fast. And when you go together, you go further. And that's what we're doing. And we're doing it all as one big team here in San Diego, using our local doctors and our educators and our parents and our families and let the science and the needs of the students be our guides. Cindy Martin, superintendent of San Diego Unified School District. Jobs have vanished rapidly these past few months. Millions of people are out of work and they might be wondering what's next for them if there just aren't enough jobs to go around. How is this pandemic accelerating changes in the uh, workforce? KYW's Charlotte Reese talked to economics professor Doug Weber from Temple University about the rapid changes in the labor market and what's happened in the past during similar circumstances. Right now, I would say the unemployment problem is, you know, as bad, if not probably worse than what we saw at the you know the the worst point in the Great Recession. We're certainly not at Great Depression levels in terms of unemployment, but uh, it's it's bad right now, and it's going to get worse. There are many businesses that are effectively being propped up by, rightfully so, by stimulus money from the government and, you know, things like, you know, all the uh, unemployment insurance money that's going out to people on layoff right now. But at some point, that's going to stop. And when it does, there are many businesses that are going to fail very quickly. What I tell people is we've only barely begun to feel the economic pain of the recession that we're in. You know, especially right now, I'm looking at employees and where are they going to go? And I think a lot of people right now are focused on that class of 2020, young people being able to find their jobs. But I keep thinking about the the people losing their jobs who maybe don't have higher education and they're older people. I mean, that's a scary thing, especially right now. Have you seen any patterns in who is being affected by this economic crisis? Yes, and it's unfortunately the way it typically goes, which is the people who have it the worst are also experiencing the worst uh, here. That in general, people who were already high income, you know, they're, I'm not saying that there aren't any uh, previously high income people who aren't facing some pain right now, but disproportionately, the layoffs and the wage losses are occurring among people who were already struggling coming into this. And that absolutely is centered around people without a college degree of, you know, either two or four years. And like you said, like this is a really difficult and scary for many of them because it's, it's, Long-term unemployment is really hard to come back from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's any good advice for people right now losing their jobs? Or, I mean, is there a solution to this mass unemployment problem or just suggestions of where people should go or what they can do? Well, if you are 
interested or in a position to gain some skills in something that would hopefully have a good labor market outcomes, you know, as we come out of the recession, things like taking community college classes. They're much, much cheaper than four-year college credit. And, you know, they're uh, generally a, you know, when you think about getting your bang for your buck, community college is a really good place to go where you're not having to shell out tons of money. You're not, you know, having to take out big student loans. In many cases, depending on your education history, you might, given federal aid, you might be able to take these community college classes for free, you know, after things like Pell Grants are awarded. So that would be probably the best advice I'd have. If you've gone anywhere, you've probably had your temperature checked. I've had my temperature checked, I think, in the past two weeks, more than I've had in my entire life. I check my temperature at home twice a day, and then I have to go out and do it, too. It's crazy. I know, and I go, you know, I, I went to a, a dentist's appointment. You know, can we take your temperature? I went, they keep pointing this thing at my forehead. Yeah, well, you know what? No comment. <laughs> Some places have a handheld device, and they point it at you. That's what happened to me over and over and over and over again. And over and over and over again. <laughs> well, other places have a scanner that reads your surface body temperature. Now, that I haven't experienced, but... Kind of like Austin Powers. <laughs> it just scans your body. The goal is to find anyone who has had a fever and maybe, of course, the virus. But these temperature checks might not do much to actually identify people with the virus. After going through all that? Great. I, really? Don't tell me they're going to have to take your temperature another way. Well, a doctor, as long as it's oral, I'm okay. A doctor in Arizona says if someone was outside for a long time, a scanner can read that they have a fever even though they don't. And researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital found that only half of the kids who tested positive actually had a fever. So even Dr. Anthony Fauci says the checks are notoriously inaccurate. Great. Wow. You know what? Another piece of good news to end a Friday with. <laughs> the one thing we are hoping that when you take your temperature, you know for sure if there's at least the potential for this. And now you know not even that is accurate. I think I think the best method was what my mother used to do. She would just put her hand on my forehead and she'd say, you have a fever? Or if I was trying to uh, not go to school, no, you don't really have a fever. I'm just going to assume I have it until somebody tells me I don't. Yeah, exactly. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on the Radio.com app, at the Apple Podcast Store, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. And please be sure to hit the subscribe button. And take your temperature at the same time. Okay.